scripture readings have been rather short of late, haven't they? When you're getting into Ten Commandments, you don't have much choice. So Eric was willing to do it, and I said, you only have five words, all you have to say. And so he was willing to get up here, gratefully did, and uh, we're going to talk about adultery. As we, um, we kind of talked about last time we were together on this topic of uh, the Ten Commandments, we were on Thou Shalt Not Murder. And one of the interesting things you have to do is you've got to put the whole context of, of uh, the law uh, into, into your mind when you try to define what murder is because all the exceptions help to define the rule because there are exceptions about not killing people. Uh, and that's how you de determine what God means by thou shalt not murder. Well, the same thing is true with adultery. And it's a, it's a strange thing. You, you think, well, this is clear-cut. This should be a really short sermon because, I mean, gosh, just don't go out and commit adultery. Stay faithful to your spouse, right? Um, but there are some perplexing exceptions that plague us all. And this is one of those topics where in, in one of these days I'm going to get a face-to-face -face with God and say, you know, why did you do this? This is one of, one of the areas. A young person was once asked, I remember this, a kid, how do you define adultery? And he said, it's pretending to be older than you are. In other words, you're adulting, you know, you're pretending to be an adult when you ain't, right? Uh, and it's really kind of accurate. Um, we're children of God, and we always have to be children of God. You've got to be like a child to enter the kingdom of God. You've got to be like a child to stay in the kingdom of God. And a child says, what's the rule? And there's some rule outside of himself, and he goes by it. Adults seem to think they can make the rules, and they can give themselves exceptions to them. We are not to grow more and more independent from God like we are physically. When you grow into an adult, you get more and more independent of other people, and you stand on your own, and you're self-sufficient. Spiritually, spiritual growth is just the opposite. You do not try to get more and more independent. You grow as dependent on God as you can, and don't call the shots to your own life. There's a great theologian I want to quote, a friend of mine, related to some members here. His name was Gerald Carraway, the late, great Gerald Carraway, short guy with a tall spiritual stature. He did a lesson once. He says, if you ever see a door, uh, the door to hell, it's going to say adults only. If you ever see something that says adults only, you're pretty sure you're not supposed to go in it. You're driving down the highway and you see a big billboard, adult store. You think any Christian, any Christian should be in that store? Shake right. No, we shouldn't. You're, you're, you got pay-per-view or you got some kind of thing on your cables. This is an adult channel. You think you should be watching it? No. If it's only for adults, most likely nobody who's a child of God should be involved with that stuff, right? Nothing good can happen by, uh, by going in those stores or watching those channels. Adultery seems like an easy definition. A couple makes vows to each other, makes a covenant, a, a lifelong covenant, form this marriage covenant, and any stepping outside of that relationship for sexual activity is adultery. But if you ever look this up online, you're going to see a lot of debates when it comes to the Old Testament and Scripture because most people will say that it seems like that only applied for women. Think about the Old Testament. I think one of the greatest forms of adultery in the Old Testament that God allowed was something called polygamy. If you make a covenant with your spouse and we become one, how could you be married to another one? 
How can you be married to two of them? And yet all throughout the Old Testament, from, from almost the very beginning, men were taking more than one spouse, and God doesn't say anything about it. He just kind of stands there. He permits it. Not only that, but they all had girlfriends. Now, we don't call them girlfriends. We don't call them mistresses. We call them concubines. It's a fancy Hebrew word that means girlfriend. That's what it means, right? And all these men had them. And nobody seems to say anything about it. How is that not adultery? Here's one of the biggest ones. Is there, is there no... No. Okay. Well, we're going to have to turn to some passages that look like the old-fashioned way. So open up that Bible, if you would, and we're going to turn to 2 Samuel. Here's one that just baffles me to no end. 2 Samuel chapter 12. David had committed this sin of adultery and then murder. You know this. Nathan said to David after he told him this story, he said, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Now get this verse. And I gave you your master's house, your master's wives, and to your arms gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you much more. I would have given you more wives. Somebody answer this question, why did God let them have so many wives and not say anything about it? I don't get it. And David, he says right here, if, if the five women you had, he probably had about four at that time, three, four, if that wasn't enough, I'd have given you more. What? You would have endorsed Adultery? Uh, the command is very clear in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. So I'm going to just read that since there's no screen and Tony's letting me down back there. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. This is just one... <laughs> I heard the growl. 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So if a man steps out of his marriage with another woman who's married, he commits adultery. Steps out of his marriage with anybody, it's adultery. And they both should be stoned. That's what he says. Leviticus 20.10. And that's not the only place, but that's the clearest one. And so the penalty should be um, death. So God's serious about this, right? Even though we have these exceptions that are very peculiar, and I don't have any explanation. I don't know anybody. I've never met somebody who has a good explanation for those. Despite those weird aberrations, the law is pretty clear. God wants you to be faithful to one person for life. The New Testament is even more emphatic than that. When you go in search of a reason for this, God's pretty clear in the illustrations he gives in Scripture. I'm going to use a little bit of country music for you here, okay? Most of the time, country music is about leaving your house and your car and your truck and your wife and all that stuff and going to another one. But there's a couple of songs that are really good about this. I, I was going to CRC. There was this guy who liked to date a lot of people at the same time. I mean, seriously date people. He's like engaged to one and, and, and dating another one at the same time. And we were all aware of this. And I would sing an Oak Ridge Boys song to him. Does anybody know what song I sang to him? Not Elvira. Don't say Elvira. I mean, I didn't know an Elvira. They have this song called Trying to Love Two Women is Like a Ball and Chain. 
or trying to love two women is, is tearing me apart. And we, we would sing this. We'd sit down to eat in the cafeteria and we'd all hum this song by the Oak Ridge Boys. And it would just annoy him to no end. He's from Neelyville, so if you ever see a person from Neelyville, ask him if he ever had more than one girlfriend at once and see if that's him. And, and, and it would just say how difficult this makes your life. Here's one of the reasons that God uh, put this kind of stringent warning in Scripture. This stuff will destroy your family, even if God doesn't intervene and punish you. Even if God did not intervene in your penalty and force a penalty on you, it would end up destroying your family. I want to take you to one example of this. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 18, so we're already in 2 Samuel once. And I'll tell you what had happened up until this time and explain why this is so difficult. They're on the hunt for Absalom, who is David's son. He's usurped the throne. He's gone against his father. He's undermined his father, taken over the, the kingdom. And now they're on the hunt for him after the story's about to end. But here's what happened with the story. First thing that happened is David committed this horrible sin in his family. What should have happened to David for committing adultery with Bathsheba, conspiring to kill his wife, uh, Uriah's husband, uh, uh, Bathsheba's husband, trying to kill him, keeping it secret for a year. What should have happened to David? He should be dead. Why isn't he? I don't know. That's a major question. That's one of the questions I forgot. Why did you let him do this? Why did you let him marry all the time? Why'd you, and why did you treat David so special? Gloves off. It's the same thing we would do with politicians. Because you're a politician, we won't touch you. God did the same thing with David. David should have been dead. But God lets him live. Turn another chapter. Amnon taken his cue from daddy-o, who now, by the way, because of his sin that's so blatant, has absolutely no spiritual authority in his family. It's been stripped for him. How can David lecture his kids on spiritual purity and self-control when he is the absolute poster child of not? He no longer has any authority in his family. You watch it. That's what ends up unfolding here. Amnon decides he's really attracted to his half-sister. Oh, man, he's wanting to put the moves on her. He's in love with her. And he comes up with this plan with the help of a counselor of his. And he ends up raping his own half-sister because he's so in love with her. And the moment he has what he wants from her, he then hates her. It's amazing what lust does. It makes you convinced you're in love. And then when you get what you want, you hate just as intensely as you loved. It's amazing, isn't it? This horrible thing took place. Rape is a horrible thing, and the church needs to talk about it because it happens. But I don't want to be the one to do it because it's a terrible topic, and I don't want to talk about it. But it happens in Scripture, and it happened right there. And guess what old David does about it? Not a cotton-picking thing. Nothing. No one stands for this girl. No one addresses this guy. And the guy who's most angry about it is the brother, the other son of David, Absalom, who's sitting here going, when's dad going to do something about this? And dad doesn't do anything because how can he speak to something he's guilty of? You strip yourself of spiritual authority when you step outside the bounds of the relationship of your marriage. You suddenly have no authority with your children. And you want to ruin a family, you just go ahead and do it. You go ahead and do that and there's not enough pleasure in the sin to cover the shame of what happens after that. You have no idea what you brought on yourself. And David knows it. He can't touch, he can't touch Amnon at all. He can't address 
Tamar. But Absalom can, and Absalom rises up later, and he plans, and he plots the right time, and he destroys Amnon. Now he's got a murderer in his family, and he should go and talk to Absalom, but does he? No, he has no spiritual authority to talk to him about that, because he didn't do anything about it, and Am Absalom did, and David sits here and goes, well, I just can't do anything about it now. The whole family is on a spiral down. And this is what happens in 2 Samuel 18. I want you to listen to this gut-wrenching cry of a father who knows he's responsible for what happens. Finally, there's a battle goes on and Absalom is killed. His other son is killed. And this is his cry at the end of chapter 18. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. He realized his son was dead. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, his heart is breaking. Would that I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What's he saying? Ah, it should be me. It should have been me who died. I shouldn't be seeing this because I deserve this penalty, not you. And you know what? He's exactly right. And there's nothing like living with that guilt the rest of your life. I don't want to tell you there's no forgiveness because there is. But even forgiveness won't fix everything. This is a kind of sin that the penalty is so deep and so long-lasting that even God's forgiveness, where you still see heaven, won't cover for all the harm that's created. Be careful, this stuff destroys families. Second, adultery obstructs your relationship with God. In Malachi chapter 2, God says, I'm in your union. I'm the spirit between you. I create the oneness that you have. And so when you, just, you, when you have this relationship, this covenant you make with your spouse, God is very much in there. So much so that when Israel decides they're going to commit adultery against God, God divorces the northern tribes. I'm not talking about two people divorcing. I'm talking about God looking at the way the northern tribes constantly flirted with the other gods, constantly went out on God with other gods. He finally said, you've committed adultery against me. I want you to read this with me too. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. Here's how God views it. In Ezekiel chapter 16, he makes it clear all this messing with other gods is adultery. It's like stepping out on God. And adultery is the only reason God would ever divorce his people. And he would. Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That faithless one Israel, has she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there she played the whore? And I thought after she has done all this, she'll return to me, but she didn't return. Her treacherous sister Judah saw it. The southern tribes saw what they were doing, saw how bad it was. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, the northern tribes, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. You know what God did to the northern tribes? Because they kept committing adultery, God finally said, no more. This is my certificate of divorce. I'm sending you away. And guess what happened to the ten tribes? They were obliterated. They are no more. They are so scattered, no one can even recognize them anymore. God was done with them. God will finally cut off a relationship because of adultery. And I'm going to tell you, this does more harm to your spiritual life than you can imagine, too. 
It devastates God and the relationship with God. It can be fixed. But it does amazing harm. And God says, there's only one thing I'll ever turn my back on you for. It's when you walk out on me, after you've made a covenant with me, you walk out on me and you choose to go to some other God or some other deity. You choose to bow down and worship something else. I will divorce you. That's the message. He will cut us off. Don't fall for this message of grace where God says, I'm, just, I'm so desperate for you, you do whatever you want to and I'll take whatever you give me. That is not the God of Scripture. He's a God of covenant. He does promise great things, but He expects them to. Don't fall for that. The world's given you this message, but God isn't. And what He's saying to us is that God is a covenant God. You know that God, great is His faithfulness? It's true. It's true. But he expects faithfulness for everybody who enters covenant with him. He expects it back. He wants to see it from us too. And for sex at its best and its optimal power for what God intended it, he did after all create it. What he intended it for was to be practiced within an exclusive permanent commitment. That's what it's designed for. This incredible glue and celebration of oneness. It cannot celebrate what is not there. And if you strip it away from a, an exclusive forever covenant, it is no longer what God intended it for. It's just as powerful and damaging, but it's not being used for what God did it for. It doesn't matter how that guy feels about that girl. That girl feels about that. I don't care how much you care about each other at the present moment. My question is how long are you going to covenant that care? How long are you willing to stand beside her? Are you willing to stand beside her all your life and put a ring on it? If you're going to put a ring on it, that's fine. But to strip that act away from the covenant and exclusive relationship with somebody completely takes it out of context and now it's not used for what it's intended for. It's a lie. It's deceit. It's destructive. The third thing is that it hurts the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when he's talking about a man who's with a woman he shouldn't be with because, because it's incest, he says the church needs to take this guy and kick them out of the church. And it's not because we're doing something God doesn't recognize. We're doing something God's already done. God has already removed him from the kingdom and all you're doing is letting them see what God has already done for that person. Handed over to Satan to be taught not to do this kind of stuff. It ruins your, ruins your witness and it dissolves your fellowship in the church. Even when church people do not honor a disfellowshipping when you engage in adultery blatantly without repentance you will lose your common connection with your church because we do not share a common bond anymore it's that powerful so when God emphatically prohibits do not commit adultery he's not trying to limit the possibility of great fun in this world He's preserving a union. He's safeguarding trust. He's protecting you for, for, for the best sex possible. He's maintaining this relationship and fellowship with you and with many. He knows this is going to hurt you deeply and he's trying to keep you from it. So we as a church need to say to the world, I know what the world says. I know what the world shows and acts like. 
But we in the church should have a different standard than anybody else in the world, and they should be able to see it in our lives, and we live it in our marriages. So how do we prevent this then? How do we prevent this adultery temptation that the world presents us? Meet your spouse's sexual and emotional needs. Hear what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm just going to refer to one verse. I haven't turned to this many verses in a long time. Do not deprive one another, talking about married people whose bodies belong to each other, except by mutual agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves maybe to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I love God's blatant honesty. You guys have needs. That's one of the reasons that drives you to each other. You have needs, and so be responsive to each other's needs. Now, before you get married... You need to do premarital counseling. If you get married here, certainly if you get married here by me, you're going to have to go through weeks of this. Poor Shelby Gage is just, you know, Kyle's just had to do this lately. Poor folks. But they, they made it. They survived it just barely by the skin of their teeth. But the whole idea is to talk about this and understand, guys, before you go into this, I want you to know your needs are different. Guys, your wives are not like you. <laughs> As if you need to hear that again, right? You've learned that, right? But people going into marriage don't know that. They think, well, I'm going to meet the needs just like the needs I have. No, no, be careful with that. There's a difference. On the other hand, it's this. This is true of male and female, too. Adultery is most often not about sex at all. There's a connection that's grown distant between a husband and a wife. And they're crying out for that connection, but for some reason, one or both of them aren't, aren't, aren't responding the proper way. And all of a sudden, a distance is created, a coolness develops, and into that void comes some stranger who's willing to spark a conversation. And it starts with talk. It doesn't start with a, an overture for sex. It doesn't. It starts with somebody starts engaging in conversation and making a connection with one of them, and then later on, it develops into that. And no, the theory that a good dally with adultery will be therapeutic for a marriage is the stupidest doctrine in the history of the world. So regulate, here's a second thing, regulate your inner man to eliminate any outlets for sexual expression, whether real or virtual or imagined. You've got to understand that this sin, it, it, it already exists within our hearts. That's what Jesus was trying to say in the Sermon on the Mount. Ma Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. He says, this is already there in the heart, so be really careful that you regulate that heart. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's already there. That sin is already an embryonic form in you, and all it's looking for is a time and a place. So what you've got to do is you've got to go to the level of the brain, the heart, the mind, what you think. You've got to regulate that sexual expression in your head. And it doesn't even, it doesn't even, it's not even just about people that you see. It's about people and images online and in print and in your imagination and in your past that's stored up in your brain from things you've seen before. We've got we've to get serious about this and hold ourselves accountable at the level of our head, right? Regulate your inner man and eliminate all the outlets for any kind of sexual expression at all. Do not let the playground of your mind mess with thoughts that you should not engage in at all. Boy, is that pesky. I'd go a little further and say this, avoid every illicit sexual stimulation or temptation that's out there. This is the next verse, as he says. 
if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body should be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. God, Jesus is so very clear about how emphatic you have to be about this. You have to take note of what's going on in my... And if I have to do something radical... And men, if you have to do something radical to keep your thoughts pure, do something radical. If you have to shut off the internet at your house, if you have to get rid of cable, whatever you have to do. And there are other things. Uh, Song of Solomon is talking about this warning. Don't awaken love until it's time. If you can't engage in it, so don't play with it. Don't play with stuff that you can't engage in. Quit flirting around and having innuendos and these texts that people send each other that have double meaning. Don't engage in these conversations that you can't follow up with behavior because you're not married to that person. If you are married to that person, have a heyday with those messages right I want us to be flirtatious with our spouses send them some send them some messages about well when you get home you know this is what awaits you kind of thing and give them all do that but if you're not married to them don't write it don't say it don't think it and don't play with it you can't do that don't be flirtatious I know people who remember a, a particular deacon who was proper way to hug and we in the church men we need to recognize this and not be stupid with it there's a proper way to hug people that won't be misinterpreted or misunderstood so practice that if you're a huggy person and and all these women that you be constantly you say there's there's all these women who complain all the time because i'm being i'm just being myself change yourself change yourself I've thought this all I've thought this for years since I had this conversation with a woman two women in, in Canada I remember this very well it was years ago and they had some bad experiences with church people in the past I know it's hard to believe this but church people aren't always real great with each other and so the, these two people in particular they named them to me I'll never say their names and they're still there but they would come up and they'd hug them and they felt very awkward and so they avoided them every bit in the, in the auditorium they were so paralyzed with whatever that feeling is of insecurity they could not be around these people at all so I started kind of being a shield if I ever saw them get close I'd kind of step in the way and just, just kind of you know be the rescuer guy right? but I'm not a huggy person I'll never be a huggy person so if you're offended about me not being a huggy person get over it I'm just not going to do that right because there's a lot of ministries that have been ended because people got a little too huggy and stayed in a hug too long you know what I mean and so if you make somebody uncomfortable or if you're just one of these flirtatious people quit change your nature if you have to but if you ever make somebody feel uncomfortable, you should feel terrible. And I hope they have the ability to tell you, but I'm going to tell you. And you say, they should confront you. Listen, when you talk about a woman confronting a man, it takes something strange. And a lot of people do not have it, and they walk away with fear a lot. If you are a huggy person, be real careful what you do. That's all I'm saying. Don't mess with pornography or anything that sparks this struggle within you for a sexual desire that you can stir up. The teenagers are here, and I know I don't have to say this, but yes, I do. Sexting is completely out of bounds. There's never, ever, ever a good reason to send a picture of you not fully clothed to somebody. Ever, ever, ever. 
That is not for anybody. I don't even think married people should do that. All that can do is end up showing, you know, we break up and we have this, this video, th these websites that show that stuff. I don't understand any of that. If a movie scene or a TV personality causes you to become sexually conscious, this used to bother me watching Hardee's commercials during baseball games. Anybody remember those commercials? Don't nod your head. I just soon just not remember. I would change the channel when the silly Hardee's commercials came on. I don't mind telling you, it just kind of did something weird to you. And I remember watching, you know, knowing I'd watch it, it said, does that, that do something weird? Yep, did something weird, and we're changing the channel, right? I'll even watch the Cubs rather than watch the Cardinals and have to see that commercial. That's how bad this was, right? There might be movies you can't go to that everybody's talking about at work. And you are a person who's not in the know about that movie because it has that scene you don't need to see. Don't worry, it'll pass. Another movie will take its place and nobody be any the wiser. Avoid suggestive activities or store sale ads sometimes. Beware of the behaviors of people around you. And watch your vocabulary every time you talk. If a message could be misconstrued somehow, then don't send it. Another thing I would say is make your spouse a priority. I, I, I want to, this will be the last one you have to turn to. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I would underline this one because people misinterpret this sometimes. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning verse 32. Paul is not married, but boy, does he know about marriage stuff. This is what he says. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. That's why he wishes everybody would just be single like him. Then you could be free from anxieties. But he says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. That's this total focus. He doesn't have to worry about anybody else. He's not responsible for any of this. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Is that true? How many of you concern yourself every day with how to please your wife? Paul says you should. Now he says... The best thing you can do is not ever marry the girl and then you can just focus on God. But if you married her, he says, you're going to have a double. You're going to have to think about God and you're going to have to think about her. That's what Paul says. Now, he's not saying that's a bad thing. He's saying that's true. You do have to worry about how you can please her. And those of you who have to-do lists every day, it should have on your to-do list right down there at the bottom, somewhere on there, make my wife happy, right? Now, I don't know what it takes for you. It could be a text in the middle of the day. It could, but something in your day, you do have to worry about, am I, am, I, am I taking care of my wife? That is a legitimate thing. And guys, by the way, I would disagree with Paul on this. Every bit of time you spend building up your wife is also pleasing God. It's not one or the other. That's called double payment. You're doing a couple of things there. God is delighted when a man, a husband, takes care of his wife and keeps her happy with life. Here's a, a little mnemonic. I wish I had to scream, but I don't. It's called BEST. I picked it up somewhere. It's, somebody, it's somebody's. Bless is the first one. Bless, which means speak well of her on purpose and in public. Speak well of her. If you're having problems with your spouse, don't take that out in public. Don't you ever say anything negative about your spouse in public. Ever, ever, ever. There's no reason for that. But if you want to brag on her, take that out in public. Let people hear you talking about it. Speak well of her on purpose. 
E in best is edify, build her up. What is it that she needs? If she's a person, and Melissa is a librarian, so she works in the library all day, and a lot of times our worlds are so separate they hardly ever intervene. I've got to figure out a way to talk about how good a librarian she is. She loves that, you know, and, I, I, and she is. She's very conscientious about what she does, and so I, did, did I just bless and edify? Did I do that? Yeah, okay. Darn, two of them. Share. Do stuff together. There's uh, most books that you read about marriage will talk about here's the differences between a man and a woman. You've got to respect them and you've got to meet the needs of the other. But there's another class of books now called Created for Connection where they're talking about we have an emotional need for other people. And when we are on the same page, when I can say, I know, my, my wife knows I'm on her side and I am there for her at any moment. When she knows that, there's a connection between us. And, and it's a strong thing. It's a good thing. But when we spend a lot of time apart and we just don't seem to get together a lot, we're like ships passing in the night, she begins to wonder, or I begin to wonder, are we there for each other or not? Can I really count on her or not? And as that distance gets a little bit further, this, and there have been time periods in our marriage where I can remember this, feeling very antsy about this distance, and we were created to stay like this. And I will do radical things to fill this gap and draw her back. Sometimes get angry and cry out for it, right, and demand it, and that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to explain, I, we've got to reconnect here. We've got to go, go out together somewhere and we've got, to, we've got to have a conversation. We've got to draw back in because I feel this distance coming in here. And guys, even the greatest marriages in the world need time and some attention and some connection. And if you don't have it, you will feel it and it will come out in different ways. So share. Do stuff together. Make sure you're not like two ships passing in the night. You become like roommates, y'all, right? You can become like roommates living in the same house but having no kind of oneness at all. And then touch. Make sure you touch. Not, not to lead anywhere. Just touch. Just know that you're there. And finally, I would say remember how central your marriage and your understanding of sex is in presenting Christ to unbelievers. When you enter the realm of marriage, it's a whole new tool of reaching the world. You are modeling for the world what God does for humanity and what God does for the church and what God does for you. This perfect oneness of two totally different people finding a way to become one and stay that way. What a model to the world and it needs to see it. It needs to see it. So if our oneness pleases God and shows the world a great witness of him, what happens when something comes between us and destroys that oneness? It hurts that witness. To compromise hurts the work of the kingdom in your life. And your sex life is a form of worship. God created it and he wants it to delight us. So believe it or not, I'm going to say this is so crude. God is thrilled every time you are. It's true. There's one more country music song I want to make reference to. Clay Walker. Uh, a great, great classic. It's an old one that never was a big hit. But I sing it all the time. I, I, when I hear it, it just stays in my head for days. I've got a good friend who's got a good life. He's got two pretty children and a real nice wife. Yet he never quite seems satisfied. Never seems quite satisfied. I said, I know what's on your mind, but you better think about it before you cross that line. The grass ain't always greener on the other side. Then what? 
What you gonna do when the new wears off and the old shines through and it ain't really love and it ain't really lust and you ain't anybody anybody's gonna trust? Then what? Where are you gonna turn when you can't turn back from the bridges you burned and fate can't wait to kick you in the butt? Then what? Then what? It's a great song. Most of the time, you know, you're stealing each other's wives in country music. But in that particular one, where do you think it's going to lead? Enough of that. God is serious about our faithfulness. He pins his reputation and his truth on your marriage and sends you into the world with it. He's sending a message to the world in your marriage. Don't distort it. Don't mess it up. If you have committed adultery, there is forgiveness. You can repent. Like the adulterous woman brought before Jesus. And he realizes it's a trap and it's a dishonest thing. But he also acknowledges it is a sin. And he says, I want you to go and sin no more. Get out of that relationship and stay faithful to the one you made the covenant to. It is possible to get past this, to patch this up and make it stronger than it's ever been. It is possible, but it takes repentance. It takes real repentance. For those of you who are married and faithful... Do God a favor, yourself a favor, your family a favor, your spouse a favor, your church a favor, the community a favor, and the world a favor. Don't commit adultery. Keep your word. The reason we serve our God is because he always keeps his word. And what his people do is we always keep ours too. If there's anyone who needs to respond this evening, it doesn't necessarily mean if you came forward tonight and you come forward and you want to put on Christ in baptism or confess a sin, we're not all going to assume that you're guilty of adultery, okay? So don't think that the only way you go forward is, you know, you committed adultery. We're just saying if you've lacked faithfulness in any area to God and you want to get things right, tonight's a good chance to do it in front of all these people and get the prayers of the church. Whatever you need to do in response, make it known as we stand and sing.